Uh-oh, it looks like we piqued your interest in the hideout. First of all, let me tell you what the hideout is not. The hideout is not for hustlers, for grinders, or for people who are looking for a shortcut to what the world calls success. The hideout is about growing as men, creating lifelong friendships, and having the time of our lives. Are you ready to tap in to the endless source that will take you from success to significance? The hideout is two and a half days of hiking, biking, and doing the little things that it takes to create lifelong friendships. I find that joy is nothing more than falling in love with your current circumstances and allowing magic to happen. And that's when we see growth in every area of your life. Have you accomplished your goals professionally and financially and you still thirst for something more? Has success in these areas come at the expense of far more valuable things like your family, your children, and your relationships? Alignment in business, strategic partnerships, and joint ventures all come from true relationships. The Hideout is designed to get to know people before you'll ever need them. This is not your typical mastermind. The Hideout is focused on the one thing that will fuel everything, joy. And when joy is overflowing in your life, you'll find growth in your marriage, your relationships, and oh yeah, your business. Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, where attitude is everything. On today's show, um, we are gonna. What you're gonna learn is absolutely crazy. I mean, to be able to see when I say crazy, it, it has been mind blowing for the past. I, I was telling Portia, it's been about a week and a half that since we've become fast friends, and I got a chance to read her book. It's called Living Louder, Living Louder, and we're gonna make it a, a, a New York Times bestseller because it's a bestseller in her family because her mom bought it. Um, <laughs> But this this book is is incredible. The story that you're going to hear today is of a young lady who you know and ended up uh, early on uh, battling with drugs, with alcohol, becoming a very young mother, then finding the man of her dreams, then relapsing, um, then having uh, going into some real estate deals, and we'll go into those um, that weren't that great, and then went away for 84 months in a federal penitentiary and now is back and is ministering to people all over the country. This is not an episode that you wanna pop in on and pop out on, you wanna tune in, you wanna lock into it, and I tell you, it is gonna be a ride today because I asked her the question, is there anything off limits? And she said no, and there was some things in the book that I wanted to go deeper and deeper into, uh, which I think is amazing. So um, I, 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 I'm blessed to be able to be her friend, and uh, you know I wanna thank you too because we were scheduled a week before, and I had to reschedule that. Um, but it's just been amazing uh, in, the, in the last couple of weeks to be able to not only get to know you, Portia, but also to be able to read your story. And CJ has my heart. You guys are going to learn about CJ. Um, all the rest of your children, I love them too, but CJ, I, I, I just, I, I wanted to hug her the whole time while I'm reading the book. Um, but I think the coolest thing for me is the message that as opposed to getting mad, as opposed to focusing on the circumstances, as opposed to saying, why me, why me, why me, why me, why me, 
that Portia was able to take her her story and turn it into a place where she is helping other people in so many different realms all around the country and all around the world. And I believe that she's going to be one of the top speakers in the world because every organization, after you listen to this interview, is going to want to have Portia come and speak to her pe- people because no matter what circumstances you're going through, there's a silver lining if you look for it. So please welcome to the show, Miss Portia Louder. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Jeez. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. Yeah, you're just such a ray of light and joy. So I am honored that I get to hang out with you today. Well, I'm honored too. The reason why, and the thing that I didn't tell you about is my mom is from Utah. And there's a couple there's a couple of connection points. Number one, you're a very young mother, right? And so that's where I want to start. How old were you when you had your first child and what were you going through during that time? This is a very common thing in Utah. My mom was 15 when she got pregnant, 16 when she had my brother. And, um, you know, for some of us out there, I've got a 14-year-old daughter, so I'm freaking out even saying that now. But what age were you? And take us through that. Take us into young, uh, young Portia and what you're going through at that time. Sure. Yeah, I think my first real struggle was with relationships and just not knowing who I was, you know, needing that attention and that outside whatever to make me feel good. And I was 17 when I had my first son, which isn't 15, but 17 was still really young, you know. <laughs> I look at my kids, my, my son just had his first child and he's 34. So wow. yeah, yeah, it's crazy to me. But anyway, um, so I did, I had my first child at 17. I'm the oldest of seven children. And I think I just thought, well, it's time to move out and have a baby, you know, <laughs> not knowing who I was and what I was capable of. And, and then I thought, well, I just need to find the right man. If I find the right man, everything will work out. Well, that led me into another relationship with a man that was 10 years older than me and had another child. And about that time, my dad got transferred to the city, which in Utah is Salt Lake City, <laughs> which, you know, I lived in a small town. I'd never been on an airplane. I had never been to Salt Lake City and I live in Utah when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. So when my dad got transferred to that small town, I came up to visit. And I remember thinking, wow, I could get a job. You know, maybe I could be somebody, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and there I am, like, hey, I tell my, my husband, hey, I think, you know, we should move up to the city where I could get a job. And he goes, I'm never leaving this small town, ever. And I was like, well, he goes, but you can go because we don't even get along that well. Let's just get divorced. So you can see that our relationship was really firm, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> you know, solid. Um, and so that led me to Salt Lake and I got a job as a photographer. And I remember thinking, you know, just got to find the right guy. Everything will be okay. And, you know, my problem isn't infertility. That's not my problem. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wouldn't even go into details because we all know, but it just, I just, when I talk to girls in prison, I say, and then I got pregnant again. And they're like, right? <laughs> and then, cause that's what I do. So, um, my third child, I was 23 years old. And I think at that point I was scared because I was a little bit older. I had a job and I knew that my kids deserved more. I wasn't getting any child support. So I'm trying to do, you know, climb myself out of this hole and I prayed about it. So it's like my first real prayer. 
and I just asked God to help me know what to do. And I felt this warmth and comfort come over me. And I knew that I needed to give the child up for adoption. I knew that he had a family, that I needed to find them. And I went through that process and it was beautiful. It was actually, um, you know, my mom was like, hey, let me raise the baby. That would be too hard. And I'm like, no, mom, you got to change the cycle here, you know? So I felt really strong about, I was pretty convicted in terms of what I needed to do. And that was a beautiful experience. My, the family was right there with me. And then as soon as I had David, I just felt totally empty inside. And that was when I just, I, I knew now a man's not going to solve my problems, but I picked up a bottle of Percocet. This is going to solve my problems. And man, I remember the first time I took those and it just made everything feel okay, you know? And then it was just hitting it hard. I, I went from, you know, a using a little bit to using a lot to being dependent to losing my job and being completely scared and I'm gone all the time, leaving my kids. My parents are taking care of my kids. And, and I, and I share in the book, I came home late one night. My son was waiting for me by the window crying and he had been there all night. And my mom just looked at me and said, what would it take? Like, what, what could it be? This little boy loves you so much. He's been waiting all night for you. If this isn't enough for you, you should just leave and let us take care of your kids. Nothing would ever be enough for you if this isn't. And that night, you know, I just, I walked downstairs and I laid on the floor and I just sobbed and I begged God to take it from me. I just said, I can't do it. I'll give up everything. I'll give up relationships. I'll give it, you know, I've tried everything I know how to do. And, and I, and my little boy, he's like, mommy, why are you so sad? And I was like, I'm so ugly, Jace. I'm so ugly. How can I do this? You know, and, and he says, mom, no, come look in the mirror. Cause mom, look how beautiful you are. Look at you. And I, and I just knew that I would never, ever do it again. I, I knew right then I was going to, I didn't know how, but the next day I walked over to, to a, well, in our, to a religious counselor. And I just said, help me. I don't know what to do. And he goes, yeah, you need help. <laughs> He's like, you need more help than I can even get. Because <laughs> I didn't look very good at that point. I looked pretty beat up. I've been crying all night. And, and so he got me involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then they got me involved in Narcotics Anonymous. And, and I started that climb to change my life. And it was really hard. I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, there were days that I just, it, it was a daily battle for me. For probably six months, I still wanted to use. I walked away from, from the lifestyle, the people I knew, and just started building something new. And, but God was with me in that, you know, when I look back, I think there's no way I knew, I knew at that point that God did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. Right. So my, my faith was really firm that, that I had a power greater than myself in my life because I had tried to do it on my own. And yeah, I met my husband, which I wasn't looking just to be clear on that. Like I quit looking for men. <laughs> I, I knew I, w I had a problem, but it came to that. <laughs> And, but Chad's a great guy and he, he adopted my kids and we started building a life. 
So that's the early, the young part. Well, let's go let's go back a little bit, Portia, because I always like to understand the root of it, right? Because I have a 14 year old daughter, I want to know uh, what are some of the components that cause you know women like yourself. You're a very beautiful woman. If you're watching, you can see Portia. She's a beautiful woman. You got uh, you know you're incredible, and you choose a bone. You start choosing boneheads. And when you start choosing boneheads, then you get around them, and then their perspective kind of rubs off the mashak, right? The uh, the Hebrew word mashak, it rubs off onto you. Thank you, Tim Story, for telling me that word, because I only uh, barely graduated from high school. Um, but that mashak starts to happen, and we're around boneheads, and then we start to take on their perspective. Like, what are some of the things that were the contributing factors to allow these boneheads into your life? Was it that you were, was there a void with your dad? Was there a void in relationships with men? Was there, I mean, where, where did this come from? Well, I think like if there's one thing that I've been able to identify, I really think it's just that my mom didn't know how amazing she was. Like, I think my mom couldn't give us something she didn't have, you know? So it's become very important for me to know who I am because I can't give that to my kids. And it really took me years to figure that out. My dad was a Vietnam vet. He was really disciplined. He wasn't super emotional. He was, you know, my mom was this creative genius, but she didn't know how amazing she was. She was scared of everything. I used to collect debts for her. She was a photographer and she'd send me to the door when I was like eight, nine and 10, you know, go, go tell them they have to pay me now. <laughs> I'm like, what sign the contract here you know she just didn't have that confidence in inner knowing of who she was and still doesn't and it doesn't matter what i tell her and she told us we were amazing but it didn't matter because she didn't know who she was and so just early i was looking for something outside myself to tell me who i was and there's lots of people that will tell you who they are like yes they are right they just they'll just tell you the wrong thing so yeah. So Portia, help me with this too. Like when was it, when did you start to realize, or when was the first time when you're a little girl and you realize maybe that there's not that confidence there? Do you remember a time specifically where maybe someone said something to you and, and you either believed it or that you recognized that? In myself or in my mother? In yourself, in yourself, because, you know, again, like as a, as a child, right? I mean, there, or, or maybe it was something that you saw with your mom or, or that you saw with your dad or that you saw, you know, happening with an uncle, an aunt or somebody, because that these, these are the, these are personal questions for me because I want to know, I want to be a better dad. Right. And I'm not saying your dad's not a great dude and your mom's not a great woman. They are, but I'm just saying like for, for all the parents out there, right. We're Mm -hmm. trying to find that Holy grail to say like, I mean, the only way that you let boneheads into your life if you're, is if you're dealing with challenges, right? And so right. when did you start to feel those challenges or start to recognize them as a young kid? I knew that my mom struggled with insecurity and I think it frustrated me. So I had this overconfidence, right? Like, I'm, you know, I mean, it frustrated me. So I'm just, I mean, it was like, what's wrong with you, mom? Like, you know, and I, and my mom used to say, well, Portia, she's really popular in school, but I wasn't, or Portia, you know, and I, but it wasn't real. It wasn't like grounded in knowing my worth and what I'm capable of doing. It was maybe I'm attractive. Well, lots of guys will hang out with you because they think you're attractive, but like, that's not the point, right? Like, do I know what I'm capable of? Do I know my worth? Because, you know, I could say there's a lot of guys that, I mean, it was the guy's fault, but truthfully, I think I was just not the right person. So I was attracting all the wrong people until I knew 
who I was and valued myself, I was going to continue to bring that into my life, you know? I think it's such an amazing story because as you're talking about it, you, you just took us through that young side. Then you brought Chad in and it's like meeting the man of your dreams. And honestly, I want to meet Chad too, because reading about him, yeah, that dude is the man. But then there's a turn, there's a turn. And right. mo- like little did you know, when you met Chad, things started to, you know, you started to see flowers and there was the, the montage of the, you know, rom-com happening and the flowers are happening and the, the smoke and you're, you're together and all the stuff. Little did you know, in a couple of years, you were going to embark on something that was the, cr- I mean, something that most people that are listening and buckle your seatbelt because you will not be able to fathom or even understand what we're about to talk about, what happened and what went on with Portia. Can you take us to that place? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do not know why Chad was willing to, to marry me. I remember, I, I mean, this sounds crazy, but like, I remember meeting him for the first time and seeing this man who was kind. He had like soft blue eyes and a really kind smile. And the main thing about Chad was he was so good. Like he wasn't ruined, you know, he didn't have any anger or bitterness. He was innocent. I thought, oh, cute guy, like so sweet, you know, but here I am. I'm like, I've been through some things and I don't know why he saw in me something so much more than I could see in myself. I think it's such an incredible quality. And if, if men out there can do that, if you can really see your woman or your whoever, whoever you're with as their best selves, you're going to bring them to that. And it takes time, you know, but, and Chad will even say through our experiences, he has become the best version of himself. He's like, I like myself so much more now, but it's going to get rocky and I'm going to share that. (laughs) So, you know, it's going to get rough. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I felt like, you know, when I got sober, God just gave me back so much. I mean, I was so blessed. I started my own company. My company grew. I went from like, 20 weddings, 40 weddings a year, 200 weddings a year. So I am just slammed taking pictures. And I have two children. I have a son that I gave up for adoption, right? At that point in time, it was, I didn't have the son that I gave up for adoption in my life. I had my two children. I'm trying to get on solid ground. So I'm helping in their school classes. I'm just being a good mom. And I start this company and my company's growing. And Chad and I are building a life that I had dreamed about. It is like, you know, every day I wake up grateful because I know the difference and I'm just thankful for the, for this life we have. And after, because what I do is I get pregnant. That just always happens. So we have our first son together. (laughs) That's what I do. Not anymore. I have nightmares of that now. Just honestly, I wake up and go, no, I'm not pregnant. (laughs) But anyway, so I have my first, our first son together and it's beautiful. Like, you know, it's beautiful. Chad's excited. We're, we're enjoying life. And then I found out I'm pregnant again which was unexpected. So they're like 18 months apart. So now I've got four kids and my business is crazy. And I, my back goes out and I have back surgery. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking I should probably tell the doctor I struggle with addiction. Mm -hmm. Good idea, right? (laughs) Should probably mention that. I did not, I didn't say anything. And now I'm too busy. So I'm not doing the things like serving the way that I was. I'm not taking the time for myself. I'm not in meditation or prayer. I'm not out in the sun enjoying life. I am working a lot of times from five in the morning till midnight and I have kids. Now I have nannies that are helping with my kids. And I went from back surgery, prescription drugs to full on relapse and just didn't get honest with myself or my husband. And 
Can you, but stop, stop, uh, stop right there for a second, because take us through the feeling of it. Um, because when people are saying a lot of times people, people that don't use drugs or never have been addicted to drugs, a lot of times don't have the empathy or don't understand. They're just like, you know what? Why don't you just not take it? If you don't, if you just stop taking it or you don't take it in the first place, all these bad things aren't going to happen. This is the way that a lot of people think that have never been through it or never had a family member in it. But then there's the reality. And when you go through, so before like, take us to the mentality of, like, where you're at emotionally when you're thinking, I should tell the doctor. And do, do, you, do, you, do you then justify in your head and you're like, uh, I mean, I could probably do just a little bit. No, I think for me it started out. So, so I needed the pills at that point. You have your back cut up, open and they remove things. You can't lift. You have young kids. I had to have people there caring for my kids, right? So the problem with me is the second that I take the pills, I'm now obviously I I mean, if I would have really been committed to sobriety, I would have told the doctor because now I'm really committed to sobriety. So like recently I have my hamstring ripped off the bone, like it was terrifying. And the paramedics had to come and the first thing I said is, I'm a drug addict, don't give me narcotics. Like that's the first thing I said, you know, because I'm so scared. I'm more afraid of using drugs than I am anything else. It's the one thing that can take me out. Okay. But at that point in time, you know, I think in a way it was just a relief. Like as soon as I take the pills, my, my mind changes. Like as soon as I take the pills, I start thinking different and I feel like powerful and strong and brave. And I mean, it's just, it just feels, it's like the quick fix. And keep in mind, I've used them enough in my life that there's those pathways in my brain. And I think I can do it and function. I always think that that's the, the scariest thing for me. As soon as I take them, I think, see, I can function and use these. It's not a problem. So now I just have to consciously say this equals prison. This equals destruction. This is your son sitting on the floor crying for his mom. You know, that's how I have to look at drugs. They just, this means you can't write a book. This means you can't do all the things you're passionate about in your life. I just completely compare the two. Otherwise I use drugs and I like to, I like drugs. So <laughs> I'm just being honest. No. And I love you know? that part of it because I asked one of my friends one time, he, he was, uh, he was doing cocaine and I asked him, I said, what's the downfall? Like, what's the bad parts of it? And he looked at me and he's like, you want me to be honest? And I said, yes. And he said, nothing. And he said, honestly, the only, he said, the only downside to cocaine is that my wife gets mad at me when I take it. He said, I'm more productive. I'm more of all this stuff. And he's like, but I, I am cured from it. I am not doing it. And I was like, "Uh, it's about to happen again, you know, because so take us like speak to that drug addict out there that is coming through their first, and when I say this, their first mm-hmm. overcoming recovery. the drugs, recovery, okay. their yeah, first, recovery. their first, I'm going to say that again, yeah. the first, and right. they're starting right. to maybe think in their head. Can you talk to that person right now? Yeah. What I would say to somebody that is coming into recovery is there is something so beautiful waiting for you. There's so much more than this drug can ever give you. The most creative, amazing version of yourself is waiting on the other side. You can't see it now. You can't feel it. If you made a list of everything you want to get back, you would underbless yourself because there's so much more available to you. But this drug will try to take it. It will. And it's going to trick you when you're weak. And just believe 
But whatever you're feeling your first three months, it gets a thousand times better. Whatever you're feeling seven years sober, it gets a thousand times better. And one will take it all from you. And that's what I have learned about me is that it's not easy to get sober, but it gets really beautiful and everything comes back to you. And so that quick fix, it just brings destruction. It's a cheap artificial BS, you know, substitute for something real and beautiful that's waiting for you on the other side. Here is the station identification before we go into, I mean, honestly, like I want, I want to go to the, to the place, you know where I'm going uh, with this, but I want to do a little station identification and, uh, and thank one of our sponsors is the private money club. For any of you listening to the podcast, you guys know I'm a relationship guy. I'm not a transactional guy. And so the reason why I had the, uh, the private money club sponsor the podcast is because of the relationship that I have with the owners. And it's been amazing. It's basically like a, a dating site for money, for hard money. So you'll take, if you have uh, deals that you need hard money for loans you go into there if you have money that you want to loan it matches you up and you swipe the deals back and forth you can check this out at uh, privatemoneyclub.com backslash kelly and you can use the code kelly 500 and you'll get some goodies so uh now with that transition that's the worst transition of all time too by the way Portia. but this transition is you meet chad you come out of the recovery uh, you know what I'm saying? Like things start going well. You start having, I mean, you had 20 kids. I think it was, you said, I'm joking with you. Um, you had, Close. yeah, you had, you had two more children. Um, now you got four. Um, things are going good. Business is booming. The back thing happens. We get a little taste. We start going back in. Take us. Yeah. So yeah, my addiction, um, I really thought I was managing things. Again, you know, my company's doing well in my photography business. I'm using pills. And about that time, 2005, 2006, I decided I need to build a house, a bigger home with a studio. I have a studio outside my home. And, and so we, we build a home in a new neighborhood that's kind of booming and real estate's popping. And so I'm thinking, I can do what they're doing. I can do that, you know? So I, I watch people flipping lots. I'm like, I'm gonna flip lots, which there's nothing illegal about flipping lots, except that I already have a full-time business and then some. And so I start buying and selling lots, but it's not good enough for me because I don't just like to do drugs, I like to hustle. So one or two lots is not enough lots for me. I need a neighborhood of lots. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest. Hey, I, I know this it. about me. And so I, I keep my distance now from like drugs and money kind of are about the same wavelength for me as far as, you know, I really try to keep myself centered. But at that point in time, I'm all in. And so I'm buying these lots and flipping it. And I remember this guy showing up in my, you know, hey, we want to show you this deal where you can buy this house and pull a bunch of cash and reinvest it and, and make more money down the road. And at first I'm like, never do that why am I going to go into a bunch of debt and borrow more money than I can afford and and then you know eight percocet later so <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying you know all of a sudden I'm like that deal looks great I can make some fast cash <laughs> You know, just being honest. So, Portia, talk to us too about this. Talk to us about this uh, concept because my wife and I were discussing. Like, you have been the topic of discussion for probably the last week and a half for me in my in every one of my relationships. And what my wife asked me my my thought process on it, and I said it was a dimmer switch. And you know, because God gave me that uh, a while ago about um, you know that the dimmer switch happens very very slow, and you don't know you're in the dark until the dark actually happens. 
Can, so can right. you take us through that? Because you, I mean, you, and I love the way that you playfully said eight Percocets later, this deal looked real good. Right. You know what I mean? Was that, uh, talk to us about that dimmer switch because when I, when I think about that deal, right. And I want you to explain, explain the deal first, but I want you to explain it in detail because the listeners, when you hear this, you're going to literally have red flags. I had red flags when I was reading the book. I was like, Portia, and, and I know that you already lived this story, but I was like, I was reading the book and I was like, Portia, don't do it. Like, I felt like I was in the movie and I was like, don't do it, Portia, don't do it. <laughs> right. But I don't perc- myself at night. Yeah. Don't do it. Eight Percocets <laughs> in, it's like, do it yeah. a little bit, Portia. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so tell us the deal. Right. Tell us the specifics on the deal because I think this is so, because we are coming into a time like this again in our economy and people are going to hear about these deals. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it first started out again, just flipping lots. That's totally legal. Buying, building construction. And then, yeah, this this gentleman says, hey, we've got a house. At first, I think it was like a three million, the appraisal's $3 million and you can buy it for a million five. And I'm like, why don't you just sell it for 3 million? Well, it's not really worth 3 million. It's worth 3 million on paper. So the appraisal's good. It shows, it says 3 million. Okay, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Sorry, right, right. But there's some, there's some, sidekicks to this because okay. for one in utah they've got billboards i don't know if they did in california come borrow money and do an equity deal your credit is you know you can use your credit i mean they're basically advertising these types of deals anybody can get a loan right not only that but we send the appraisal to the bank i say uh, i think the first thing i did was like four or five million the appraisal the house is selling for three so we send it to the bank and say what will you borrow we're paying three and appraise it at five We'll lend 4.5. So, I mean, they're fully aware that this chunk of cash is coming back. So there's a whole lot of deception going on in this whole thing. I mean, we're using a paper appraisal. Somebody's not going to buy the house for that. These are homes that are, you know, overbuilt and, and a lot of them, the insides aren't nice and they're just, they're being used just to pull the cash out and the bank's aware of it. The appraisals are doing it. I'm not licensed. I'm an investor, the guys that are setting the deal. But you know what? I absolutely felt it in my soul. I knew it was wrong. And I went down the road anyway. And once you do one or two, you just keep on going. So, you know, I will never say I didn't know. I absolutely knew. Now, I used to say I didn't know when the feds came around. I was like, I didn't know. know." (laughs) But let's get honest. I knew everyone knows that's wrong and it, and and then you do them and you everything gets blurry but that's how, how it went for me. did the did the money blur it because I think a lot of times and th- I see this happen with different different scenarios it's like I would never do that and then once it happens and you see the money and then you see not just the money but the results of the money maybe you're taking care of your kids uh-huh. at a different level maybe you're you know able to have a little bit less stress whatever it is and then you're like, eh, I mean, it's kind of wrong, but mm, is this the process that you went down? All that and then some, because it's an addiction. The hustle is an addiction. Don't believe me in prison. Everyone's there for money, whether it's a drug addiction. They like the hustle. You sit around and talk about this stuff. Like back in the day, I did, you know, it's a rush to do those deals. That is what I, I believe. I believe you start out, like for me, I, I didn't start out addicted to hustling. 
I didn't start out addicted to drugs. You use them for a legitimate thing. And then pretty soon that feeling, that rush, you get hooked on it. So yeah, I just got to the point later on where I was just like, no, I know this about myself, you know? Yeah. At first it, it felt uncomfortable and then pretty soon it starts feeling good and it's exciting. And like you say that, I don't even know if it was, I mean, the financial benefits were, were exciting, but just the thought was exhilarating of making all this money and the accomplishments and, and all of that, you know, the things that are worldly that became very clear later to me how unimportant they were. But at that point they seemed like everything, you know, here's the crazy thing to me at this point in time, I, I had told myself I'm doing this for my kids. <laughs> how stupid I'm doing it for my kids. They're going to have a better life. I'm going to buy them cars and send them to college. Well, if we're going to talk about it, but it becomes very clear later to me that I had traded everything of value, my children for money. I'm like, what? It became very clear. But at that point, I think I'm doing this for my kids when in reality, this took my kids from me, you know? So you told us about the $4.5 million deal. That's the first one. I, and I want to compliment you because you didn't just tiptoe in. I mean, Portia, I love you so much. You're like, you remind me of my pop. My pop told me one time, I said, pop, have you ever done any other type? Because he smoked weed when he was growing up. This was normal. He was from Utah and, you know, whatever. And he spoke, and I said, Pop, you ever do anything else? He's like, what do you mean? And I said, Pop, you know what I'm talking about. And he's like, what do you mean? And, and I had to say it. And I said, do you ever do anything like, you know, cocaine, anything like that? He was like, well, one time I was at a party. I go up top. The guy says, yo, we're going to do some coke. You know, we're going to do some blow. He lines up one uh -huh. line, one line. And my dad looked at it and he's like, if that's all you got, I ain't getting started. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and are you feeling this, Portia? You are feeling this because yeah. this is you. So you jump into this $4.5 million deal the first time, bang, take us through, right. like what's the next one? And then the next one. Yeah. Well, that one really screwed me over because, you know, I get in this deal and I buy it with hard money. And we talked a little bit about hard money. Well, I got a, a point a week, you know? So, I mean, I'm paying four grand a week for this house and Where's that money going to come from? Because I thought in my mind, I can flip it and sell it real quick. I didn't really realize at that point how overinflated it was, you know? Sure, everybody's looking for a $4 million home like tomorrow, you know? No, that sucker's up there for a long time, you know? And in fact, I don't think that thing ever got financed and it just drug and drug and drug on. And so then I'm trying to do other deals to cover the cost of that deal oh and then other deals and pretty soon I got to do another deal to make up for that deal. So I get into another equity deal. That's a little cheaper. Cause in my mind, I'm thinking maybe 2 million is the sweet spot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> maybe I just went too big. Oh no. And it just turned out like that. It just kept rolling. And it was, it was the most heavy, awful feeling. When I look back at it, it was terrifying. But at the time I was all bravado because I was taking Percocet. So, you know, I made sure I kept my Percocet strong, but I mean, I'm, I'm ruining, like I just, it was terrible. It was heavy and it was awful and it didn't take long. And the thing that made things worse is that early on, like very early on, there was another, how this is unusual. Another Porsche is investing in real estate. There's not that many of us out there. Her name's Porsche Bunker. Okay. So, and the feds are investigating her because she's a hard money lender and she has a whole bunch of deals that she shouldn't have been doing. And so I become her alias at title companies. So people are thinking that I'm trying to do a deal as her and we're the same person. Well, the feds are investigating her. So what happens? 
they start investigating. Oh. So that, yeah, and that made me mad because I was like, it's unfair. Go check on other people. There's other people doing worse things. Again, such a weak position because my integrity was was whacked. You know, it didn't matter why. And I'm actually grateful that they showed up because this is the most terrifying thing for me. The most terrifying thought is what if I would have gotten away with it? Like that's scary to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a friend that went to prison and he and I talked recently and he's like, I'm glad I went, everything turned out good, except what it did to my kids. That makes me so sad. And I said to him, bro, what if you would have gotten away with it? What would that have done to your kids? What kind of an example would you have been to your kids? You know, yeah. that to me is worse. So. But anyway, yeah, the Fed showed up. Nobody wants that. Just so you know, like you hate that when the Fed show up. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said nobody wants that. I I think that we're all in agreement with that. Uh, When you said you said it like it was going to be a surprise to all our listeners and to me, like the Fed showed up. You don't really want that. No, if you would have said the milkman, you don't want to. I would have been like, wow, tell me more. But. When the feds show up at your house, I don't care what's happening, but take us through the emotion. Like, where are you at in the house? Do you hear the knock and does Chad answer the door? Does the kid answer the door? What is it? Tell, take us there. Yeah. So so at this point, um, I have another child because that's what I do. And I'm, and I'm, (laughs) this is my final one. Like he said, (laughs) so I have such, so I have two toddlers, a newborn baby. She's three months old. And I am, I knew that they were investigating me. I went to an attorney and I mapped it all out. And he said, yeah, you think you're more important than you are. Just ignore it. You're not that important. I was like, I hope not. (laughs) Like, I'm not trying to be important because just stay under the radar. I said, but I'm hearing all these rumors that I'm being investigated. I want to write this out and make sure it's okay. He's like, it's probably not the best but you're not the big hitter out there. And he's like, you're not even making that much money. You're taking all the risk. Other people are making all the money because I might make a hundred grand on that $4 million deal. And then I have to pay the payments. And so in the end, if I make a hundred grand, but I, there's the potential of losing two or 300 grand. Like he's like, why are you doing it? You're taking the loss. The buyers are walking away with their credit on the line and they got a half a million back, but they didn't have to risk the hard money payments or anything. And I was like, yeah, because I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, so I'm so anyway, he's just thinking it's not a big deal. And then they show up at your house. Mm. And it's terrible. Like I literally am standing there with my three-month-old baby baby, and I'm thinking, and I said to him, You can have anything I have to just go away. I showed him a family picture. I was like, see this? You can't have it. <laughs> you know, I have this family, I've worked so hard. I literally wanted to show him a picture of me at 17 as a single mom. I'm like, I worked hard to get here. Please just go away. You know, are you still on and Percocet? Are, are you still using Percocet? Yeah, again? yeah. yeah honestly, I used right up to the end. And yeah. And that was fun too, to have to finally detox and stuff. But, but at that point in time, um, Chad and I weren't doing great, you know, with all this heaviness and all the, and the feds looked at him and said, you're going to have to decide because this isn't going to go away, whether you're going to work with us or, or work with her. Cause she's going to basically saying, if you stick it out with her, it's going to get ugly for you too. And now I'm thinking it's war. Not that I, and I'm up against the federal government. So, you know, the guys with the nuclear weapon, I'm, you guys are, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you know? No, yeah, it didn't go very good. So, um, it was really rough. It was really rough. I went back to my attorney. My attorney's like, Oh yeah, 
you're probably going to get a few years. I'm like, wait, what happened? What happened? You said, no, I didn't have a problem. And now you're saying I have a problem. I went home and laid in bed and just for like three days, I couldn't even, I just threw up. I was sick. I was like, what have I done? And, and it just got ugly. You know, I drug it out. I fought, I hired lawyers. I did everything I could. And it didn't matter because in the end, you know, now here's what I would do. If I could go back, I would, I would say, yes, I made a mistake. Help me figure out how to, how to resolve it and move forward. What can I do to make it right? Cause that's where all the power lies. If I could have done that, cause what I've learned is that a mistake is a mistake, but denying the mistake makes the mistake a lot bigger. Wow. So, so take take us into the courtroom because you know, you're, you go through, you know, you we go through the trial, obviously. I mean, you're sick. You're, you're sick in your heart and you're sick physically too during this time. Cause you're thinking like your lawyer went from don't worry about it to <laughs> you're possibly might get a couple years. And right. then I, I haven't had it this real Portia until I read your book of, because I have two children, mm-hmm. um, my daughter of which at 14 years old, I don't want her to date bonehead. So that's why I'm trying to figure this stuff out. Um, right. But the reality and the gravity of the sentence coming down, I've watched Law and Order for years. My mom was a Perry Mason fan. You know, like we watched these things. And and the sentences never, they never connected with me. In your book, it connected with me. Can you take us to that place and let us know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and what you're seeing in that courtroom when that comes down? Yeah. So I remember, <clears throat> I remember walking in the courtroom and feeling something I've never felt before. And it's the most sterile place you'll ever go. It like took my breath away when I walked in. I was like, oh, I could feel it, you know? And, and then I sat down and I looked back and my husband and all five of my children are sitting there together. And I knew right then that I was going to get the maximum sentence. And I don't know why it was shocking to me. It just shocked me. I went from maybe probation because I had zero to seven year plea deal. So in my mind, I'm like a year seemed completely shocking. How could I ever do seven? I had no idea until I walked in that courtroom and I felt it. And then I was like, Oh my heck. And I deserved it. I acted terrible. I was the worst. I mean, I, I told the FBI, they should take a lie detector test. It was just bad. Like it just got worse and worse and worse. But at this point in time, I am in shock and I'm just crying. I just started crying because I knew my life would never be the same. I could just, I was just like, how, how could I be? Looking at my kids, I just thought, please just let me go with them. Please let me leave with my family. I don't wanna be here, you know? It was, it was the most lonely experience. And it was surreal because they walk in and say, the United States of America versus Portia Lauer. And I'm thinking, if they're against me, who's for me? Like the United States is, my whole country's against me, you know, it's just, it's shocking. And then the prosecutor says, you know, we're here for the United States and they start talking about me. And I'm like, who are they talking about? Like, it's so shocking. I didn't understand because all these words sounded so bad. And, and I'm thinking, and that, you know, I'll tell you this, every person I've ever met that's been in a courtroom, we know it's like an experience you can't ever describe until you've experienced. And we, it, I don't care how big and brave and tough you are. We look at each other with like, like hushed tones when we talk about this experience. It's like, this stuff is the kind of stuff that breaks 
really brave people. I talked to numerous women that had curled up in a ball and sobbed for days after they were sentenced. You feel completely alone. It's a shock. And, and I just, you know, the judge, I knew what he was going to do. And he said, Miss Souter, do you have anything you want to say? And I, and I, I was so scared. I remember going, I do, but I'm really scared. He's like, take your time, you know? And I, and in my mind, I thought I need to say something, but I don't know if I can get the words out. And then I just said, I am so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry to my community. I'm sorry to my husband. I'm sorry to my kids. And I know what you're about to do. And I'm just asking for mercy. That's it for my family. I mean, I, I expect I deserve it, but I please just show mercy. I don't mean, didn't even know what that meant, but it ended up being um, that he said, thank you. And, and he said, I'm sentencing you to 84 months, which is seven years. And, you know, I just sat down and, and it was, I thought that was the worst of it. But, you know, then he, he said that he wanted to take me into custody. And that wasn't something I expected, you know, because I was white collar. So I thought that I would get time to say goodbye to my kids. And that kind of, that woke me up because I was terrified. I thought, oh no, you can't do that. Like my kids will see me drug out of here in chains and shackles. I can't do that, you know? And even the prosecutor said, don't, please don't do this to her. Like we're not asking for this. My lawyer, please don't do this to her. And then Chad was the one that stood up and he just pled for me. He said, he was crying. He said, please give her, please give her time to say goodbye to her kids. She needs this. And I think that that was so powerful from him that the judge just gave it to me. And it, you know, I don't, my lawyer, the prosecutor, no one else had that kind of influence, but Chad's love for me mm. and his complete humility and just advocating with the judge for me. It was beautiful. It really was. So. So take us from that beautiful time of Chad into the reality. Like, let's talk about when you first, the first day when you, when you surrender yourself and you go in, because we see movies about it. We see shows, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I see a show about my profession, I'm like, that is crap. <laughs> That's garbage. Oh, you know what I mean? Yes. It's garbage. Is there, is there any, is there any movie that you've ever seen that you're like, that's what it's like. They got it. Anything? <laughs> I get so frustrated um, watching shows. You know, I think, I mean, this, this is extreme. Shawshank is extreme, but that feeling when you walk in of complete aloneness, like it's just cold. It's cinder block. It takes time to acclimate to this environment. I loved I loved what your intro said because you talked about finding joy where you are and that's totally possible and I know because I've experienced the extremes but at this point in time I was devastated there's not even another word walking into this world of a thousand women wearing khaki nobody was like hey welcome I mean no one's happy to see you you know they just it looked cold I was cut off from my family. All I could do is imagine my daughter CJ's face. I just kept seeing it. I went in my cell and I was there for three days, curled up in a ball, sobbing, just sobbing. And my, my roommate's like, you gotta go, you gotta go eat. You gotta get out. She's like, if you don't get out of here, they're going to put you in a suicide cell. And then I said the most important prayer of my entire life, which was God, I feel like nobody. I am nobody to anybody. I'm not a mother. I'm not a wife. I have no friends. I have failed completely. I need to know who I am to you. And I felt this incredible amount of love 
so much love. I've never experienced this kind of love in my life. Like I could picture myself kneeling. I was kneeling there with nothing. And I could feel that I was the most important person to our savior. I felt loved. I could see that every woman in that prison was so valued. And I knew that I had an important purpose. And it changed me. And I thought, I never needed a man. <laughs> I mean, I love my husband, but I know who I am now. And I would go through it all again to have that one experience. And I felt, you know, it was so hard. There was lots of hard experiences. But when you know who you are and you know what you have to fight for, you can do anything. So take us to that too, because you're, you're three days, the first three days you're curled up in a ball. I mean, is, is there any uh, connection point to what we hear or what we see as far as movies where you have to establish yourself when you're in and uh, you know, you have to establish yourself and not show weakness because people will take advantage and things oh. like that. I mean, like we want to know, like inquiring minds want to know. And most of the time I I don't get a chance to be able to sit down all the time. Although I do have some, uh, quite a few friends that have been in and have come out and I'm just super curious on this. And I think that the people listening to are, um, Mm -hmm. you know, is that a part of the game? Is that something that you have to do? And do, what are the, some of the things that you have to almost cowboy up and say, like, I got to push through this thing to make sure that I'm going to be, I'm going to make it through the 84 months. Right. Well, first of all, um, I was in so much pain, I did not give a crap if somebody wanted to beat me down. I did not care. So, like, when you – people have asked me, were you scared? (sighs) I did not care. So that was kind of good because I was just like, don't care what anyone thinks of me. I do not care. And, And there's a whole tenderness side of prison that people don't talk about. There really is like my, even my friends that have got my guy friends that have gone to high security. They're like, yeah, we used to sit around and, and eat burrito bowls. We go out and play baseball. He's like, when my, you know, when I had a family member die out here, all my bros got together and like stood vigil with me, prayed with me. I mean, we back each other up like that, but right out the gate, I knew that I don't, I don't have any prison experience. I haven't been in and out of jail. So, you know, I got to figure out what I'm doing. I got to go figure out how to do my dang laundry right off, you know? So once I, once I got composed enough to survive, I found strong friends. Like I had so much backup, I think, cause I was just different, you know? Plus I'm a photographer, so they let me teach photography classes and all these things that the girls love. So man, I had friends and backup. Like I had so many people that are like, don't mess with louder, you know? So yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a fighter at all. You know, but I, but, but I'm kind and I, I'd help the girls with their GED stuff. And I would, I just, and then once they found out I had photography skills, cause you can get your pictures taken in prison. So like on the weekends they go down, they're like a dollar, you know, but I know how to take pictures. So I can take that little crappy camera and I can use a, I made a reflector out of potato chip bags and I like, I'm doing modeling shots in prison to these girls. <laughs> they loved me. They loved me for that. So you know, I, I, but yeah, it, you have to hold your own by the, I am very good with boundaries at this point in my life, like very good to the point that it, it, I remember at the end of my sentence, I was teaching classes on assertive communication. And one of the girls said, put that book down louder. You scare me already. You know, like I got to that point where it was just like, don't mess with me. But yeah, you start out kind of soft and, and you still are soft, but you learn boundaries, or at least I did. 
And I liked, by the end of my sentence, I loved myself. I was like, I have become the best version of myself. But that was a lot of accountability, lots of time praying, lots of time serving, a lot of time meditating. I mean, I want to go back for a month or two and just take a break, to be honest. I'm tired of this crazy life. You know? So help, well, and help us to help us to understand um, what people don't realize um, about prison and about people who are in incarcerated, because I think a lot of times it's just like the drug thing that I talked about earlier. When we're, the, the closer and closer some, you are to something, the less and less judgment you have on it. And if you see drugs from far away, you're like, those people are awful people. You should just not do it and everything. Then you get closer to it and maybe your mom does it or your sister does it or maybe you do it. And then you're like, well, I mean, I can understand it. What, what do you wish that people knew about prison and about the inmates in prison? I wish that people knew how amazing they are, how strong and brave, kind and good. Like I had smart, so smart. Like I, I, I was blown away. I created this whole escape room thing, which is kind of funny because it's prison, right? So I put all of these like puzzles together and they'd have to go in different areas and complete this puzzle or that. And I'm like, I thought it would take them like 10, 20 minutes per puzzle because there's codes and stuff. Oh no. Those girls locked mines and they were like, 58 seconds, we got the first one. 22 seconds, we got the, I mean, they're, they're smart. And yet they've had the hardest lives. Most of them, their parents are addicts. Some of them were sold into prostitution, 10, 11, and 12. I never sat in a class with a girl. I was the only woman I ever met in prison that hadn't been either beat up, sexually abused, sold into prostitution. All of them have so much trauma. And yet they're trying to figure out life. They're trying to do it. They're hard workers. I would hire someone out of prison any day. And I and I had I had a warden that I'm friends with once tell me, he's like, I would take a high security inmate that's reformed over anyone else as an employee. That guy's got your back. That's the guy that you know is solid because he's worked through his issues and you can depend on him. And I totally agree. Like my friends in prison, they have my back. And they they're just it's just so different. I had girls leave sweet notes on my locker or go in the morning and get me an apple and bring it to me because they knew I liked apples. Kind, tender, loyal, hardworking, and most of them the hardest circumstances with nothing, no family, nothing. So, so Portia, talk to us too about, <clears throat> I mean, you seem to, there. I always talk about a fork in the road, right? So we always have these forks or sometimes it's like a, a fork of like seven different uh, options that you can go to. But yeah. there's, there's forks in the road and I think that yours, I mean, I, I see it as two ways. Number one, you could get really, really angry that the system did you wrong, that all these things happen and then you just, and you go down that road and then you harden yourself and you become that person. You seem to take the yeah. other fork of, taking personal responsibility. And throughout the whole book, this is what blew me away. I was waiting for the chapter where you were like, I'm pissed. Someone did this to me. I don't deserve it. And it never was. It was like, I take responsibility. I did it. I'm here. I'm taking, I'm not taking anything away. And you kept like reiterating that. And then you wanted to go back and help people and help people to be able to see what helped that fork in the road as far as your choice and why was that so important and how, what kept you on track? What was the little bumpers that kept you on track? Cause you're human and you got to get a little mad yeah. at some time. Right. Well, I think there's, 
there's, it's like denial, right? I mean, it's like grieving. So you start with denial and then there's anger and there's bargaining and all of that. But what, for me, what I saw was I was fighting for my children and I was fighting for my future. And I knew that if I choose this victim path, I'm not going to have the strength to make something of myself. And my kids are going to grow up thinking the system did them dirty. Somehow I've got to take ownership and it means walking through it and, and accepting my sentence and accepting what I did. And it was good because I could see a lot of people stuck in prison. They're really nice people, but they don't have the power to change and move forward. Right. And so as I'm sitting, I'm sitting there with smart people, lawyers and doctors, and they're all talking about how the government did them dirty. And maybe they did. I don't know, but I'm thinking I got to choose something different if I'm going to be free, like if I'm going to find freedom. So I was really driven to do that. And, and I share in my book, um, this gal that gets up in, in a class and she just, she lays it out. She's so brave and tough and she's got a lot of, lot of garbage that she has to face, right? And she stands up in this group and she's like, I'm here 100% because of myself. I'm a drug addict, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I hurt my kids, I hurt my husband, I hurt my community. I deserve to be here. And then she gets really descriptive and we all just stand there and it was like, you could feel the power. You could feel how powerful it was for her to take ownership of all that. And the therapist is like, what would make you stand here today and be so honest? What is it? And she said, because I've tried everything and I'm either going to tell the truth and it's going to free me or I'm going to die. Like she was at that, that road, that fork, you know, where it's like, I'm either going to live and be honest or I'm going to die. And that's when I knew like, I'm going to get so real with myself. Like I made a spreadsheet six months later i had it all itemized out i'm like my freedom comes through responsibility man you know i start sending out letters i'm so sorry i hurt you tell me how i hurt you like it was time to get real and what's so cool was that i had a group of women that i took down to the rec yard and and i like laid it out for them and then i buried my garbage and i said i'm going home free and those girls would wake me up in the middle of the night and they'd say, Miss Louder, can I tell you my stuff? And they would like share their crap with me. And we like, we owned it together. And those girls are killing it out here. Like they have a beautiful life because we got so honest and we took ownership of our life. So for me, I can see the power in it and it, and it sucks to, to acknowledge that you made those choices, but that's where recovery is. It's through that humility and honesty. And I, I did a treatment program, which I talk about in the, in the book, it was terrifying. I mean, for real, there were so many times girls were threatening me because I'm like, actually, you're being dishonest. You're totally prideful. You're lying and cheating. And they're looking to be like, you're going down tonight. You're going down, you know? <laughs> but we, we grew so much when we just let go of the judgment and really did an honest assessment of where we were. So I highly recommend that. I'm a big fan of just being open and honest with your weaknesses. That's how we heal. But it took a while to get there. It did. Where does a person start? Because when, when we hear this part of it, right? So that's the like the 30,000 foot view, right? Is like, you know, forgive, right. uh, lock in. Take, and, and people have said this to, to me, um, and they probably said this to you as far as the book, right? When you wrote the book, they were like, the hardest thing right. that you'll ever do is write the first paragraph. And I'm like, you never wrote a book before. It's the first, it's not, even the, it's not even the first letter, Portia. It's turning on the computer right. or picking up the pen. You know what I'm saying? Or, right. or for right. some people, sitting down. Like, just sit down, right. shut up. That's the first stage. Take us to the first stage that can get a person on that path to 
the forgiveness part and to taking personal responsibility, what would be the first, maybe like give them the first three things, like start with this little thing. Well, I think the first thing is that you want to be free. You have to say, I want to be free. I want to, I don't want to be a victim to anyone. I want to create a new future. I want my mind to be open and free. You know, if you want that, but you got to know that you want it because there's obviously a payoff for being a victim and, and complaining all the time and talking about how done dirty you've been. People do it. So there's a payoff, right? But there, it doesn't lead to any kind of joy or lasting freedom. So you have to say, am I going to be brave and face the truth or am I going to stay comfortable and live in, you know, being a victim? I mean, so make a choice, get, want it. When you get to that place, then there's, that opens things up. And, you know, I think, and then I think that the other thing that could be really helpful is, man, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful, but nothing amazing happens without it. So, you know, just be open to that, like recognize for me, it was really painful to acknowledge to my kids that I was hundred percent there because of my choices. Cause they were suffering. They were suffering. You know, they were struggling. My kids, my son told the principal to F off one day. He was really mad. He had a chip on his shoulder because his principal said, I don't want you to turn out like your mom. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bad thing to say. Right. But you know what I said to Jackson? I said, I don't want you to turn out like me either, buddy. I don't want you to go to prison either. Wow. And then he's like, that's not the point. And I said, you're right. It's not the point, but I did this to you, not your principal, not the cops, not the FBI, nobody. It was me. You need to tell me how I hurt you because that was the way for my son not to feel like he had been a victim of the system. He had, he had to face that. And my daughter told me she didn't want to talk to me for two years. She's like, I don't care if I talk to you again. I wrote her letters. She's my, my husband said, they're stacking up. She won't open them. She was so hurt because she was suffering and she had a right to be, you know, you've got to be willing to let people hurt. I think it's real easy to say the government did me dirty and then it's nobody, you know, my kids aren't mad at me. They feel sorry for me. But the truth is I did this to us and my kids have to face that too. And that's painful, but you're building a new life based on truth. The reward is you open up your soul. You're able to dream and create a new future. You can envision something different. I didn't want to be stuck that person. I didn't want to be the girl that blew it in real estate the rest of my life, you know? Well, I think there's two types of, uh, <clears throat> I mean, this is stereotyping and it's grouping, but I mean, when you hear about prison, you generally hear about two different scenarios. Number one, the person who goes in and then becomes a product of the system and then gets out and then searches for the next deal and then they end up back in. Uh, then there's the right. other side that... <clears throat> is well, let's call it the reform side. You used that word earlier when you were talking about the warden. Um, the reform side that then goes and makes a difference in their community, makes a difference in the prison system. They go and speak. They, they're, they're you know spending time with the youth, and they're just completely honest with what it is that they're doing. What is the difference between those two people? <laughs> I mean... The difference for me is I got to the place where I realized not only was I guilty, but I was more guilty than everybody else because they're like, when you first go in and I'm looking around going, ah, you're a drug dealer. Your life's a mess. You know, you're this, your life's a mess. I'm white collar, <laughs> right? Oh, BS. Like by the end of my sentence, I'm like, I knew better. I had a good upbringing. I have support and I still made these choices. 
when you really realize how privileged your life is and how much you've been given, you want to give back to everybody. That's when I realized it's an honor to stand with you guys. You're my people. You guys are braver than me. You're stronger than me. And I'm right here with you. And because I have some things, like I got a, a different upbringing or I have some talents or skills that I can use. Oh man, I'm coming back for you. We're going to do this together. You're not alone because they did that for me. And so that that's what it is. Like when I go into a detention center, man, those are my kids. I love those kids. I believe in them. I see who they really are. And I have credibility because I've been through what I've been through. So it gives me, it's actually, isn't it crazy how everything bad you go through can become your strength and credibility? If you choose to take accountability and own it, if you stay in denial, you're always the victim. You know, I get those letters from people like, man, I'm so screwed. It's so unfair. I'm like, I love you, brother. I believe in you. You'll figure it out. But when somebody does figure it out, you're like, welcome home. Let's go do this. And it's so cool when I get people that come out that like get it, they get their free. They realize what they're capable of. And yeah, it's such a blessing. If I could all day, every day, go to prisons and detention centers and speak for free, that's my passion. That's where I am the most, you know, I did it in prison. I was put in as a leader. I worked as a photographer. So I was, I was really a leader in prison too. And, and I love it. And I go back every chance I get because I love it. So, so I was uh, driving with my friend in, um, in Houston one time and um, his name is uh, Rosie and, uh, or not Rosie. Um, oh gosh, Sandy. So Sandy picked me up from the airport. We're driving and we go under an underpass and we see, you know, a lot of times under the underpass, you see a, a homeless person, whatever it is. And this really changed the paradigm for me. As we're driving, he looks over and I look over and he's like, you see that? And I, at first I was like, what? Like, you know, cause it's so normal to see homeless people underneath the bridge. And he's like, that dude right there. And I said, you know, I, I see him. And he said, do you realize that he or you are a couple of decisions away from being where he is, but he's not a couple of decisions away from being where you are. And then he just went silent. It's so can, insightful, right? Can you talk to the moms, the dads, that are one or two decisions away, or even the young kid who's, who's touching the dimmer switch right now with the fast, mm -hmm. what my wife calls hustle porn, right? Yeah. Right. With watching the social media and seeing the things and being like, yo, I'm about to make that huge deal, that they're just about to touch the dimmer switch, and that can you talk to that person that is possibly one or two decisions away from going through and experiencing what you experienced? Right. Yeah, boy, and I'll tell you, that porn stuff is so scary because I saw people that were locked up for 30, 40 years because they sent the wrong picture online, right? Like, it's so scary. That stuff's terrifying. You know, what I would say is I traded everything important for the most invaluable things, and I didn't know it until I, I was sentenced. And when I sat in prison, I didn't ever miss the money People would say, what about food? Nope, don't miss the food. All I missed was the moments with my children. You know, that's it. I miss driving them to school or being there with them. Things that I gave away, things that I threw away for the hustle and for drugs and for, you know, for the fast life. I didn't miss anything that, that you know, certainly I can tell you that if you get in prison, 
if you do the porn and you land in prison, you're going to look back and wonder how you could have been so foolish. If there's a chance for you to see now what you have, what's real, you know, that connection, that realness and who you really are, what you're capable of, what you're on this earth to do, you would see what a complete shallow and weak, you know, just a fraud that stuff is. It's a fraud. And, and that became clear to me. Money's a fraud. I mean, I know that it's needed so you can serve and do good things. Just like sex is great when you're married and have a commitment and, you know, have children. All those things can be really good. But man, when you start dimming that switch, you don't just, you dim yourself. You just, you dim your value and your worth to yourself. My personal integrity is the most important thing to me because I look in the mirror and I like what I see. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm free from all that now. I care what I think. I am the most important person in my life, which sounds crazy, but I have to feel good about me. I have to like myself. That's what I would tell any kid, man, you're so amazing. Don't break integrity with yourself because you will never feel the same about yourself. You know, it's you that you're hurting, <clears throat> but, but I know that they have to figure it out, you know? It's hard because I work with those kids. I work in mental health. <laughs> so, and I love them, you know? What about the kid, uh, Portia, that's actually doing deals right now? Um, or the mom or the dad that's doing deals right now. And they know, they know in their heart, if they sat alone, they know that it's, it's, it's off. But they keep getting away yeah. with it. Yeah. They keep, uh, and, and, and they hadn't been caught. The feds had, like you said, you don't want the feds to come to your house. Well, then, yeah. <laughs> I could tell you, I yeah. mean, I agree oh, with you, that. right? Yeah, Talk but to that know, person. way worse than the feds coming, way worse than the feds coming to my house is how I felt about myself. I was already completely imprisoned inside. It wasn't, I mean, yeah, it sucked. That was an outside consequence of what was going on. What I would tell anyone that's in that behavior is, man, your power lies in owning right where you are. Yep, you're, you're on a slippery slope. You made some mistakes. Own it with yourself because you have the power to change when you get real with yourself. That could have come with... My outcome could have been completely different. If when, if I would have said to myself, Portia, you have an addiction and you're involved in shady real estate deals, you need to figure out how to fix it. Got honest with myself and my husband and the people around me, completely different outcome. If I would have done prison time, it would have been six months. I mean, we're talking completely different outcome. Instead, I weakened myself and how I felt about myself for years, drug it on, got a long sentence, and it took me all that time to turn it back around. You know, but, it, but wherever you are, wherever you are is the right place. It's the right place to just say, yep, here I am. I mean, I took it too far, but I could have gone further. There's people that could take it all the way through the prison sentence and they don't get honest with themselves, you know? At some point, your power lies in just being honest with right where you are. There's so much power in that. It's there for you, friend. It's there for you, you know? So Portia, what is, what is something that, that transpired in prison that you've never talked about and never told anybody outside of chat? <clears throat> oh gosh. You know, <clears throat> I have one situation. So <laughs> we're, we're fact. Hey, I'm telling you we're fact checking. Cause I have all your girls names in the book in, uh, from, from when you were in and I'm gonna get a hold of them, write them letters and be like, is this true? Yeah. So something that you okay. hadn't told, you hadn't told anybody that's exclusive here yeah. to the podcast. Okay. So we had this officer at, Dublin that we called Scarface. If you're out there, I'm sorry. He knows that's what we call, called him. He had a great big scar come down his face, you know? 
And he was kind of mean. He was tough. And he, he was just hardcore. He had his own issues. I think he was a vet. He had PTSD or something. But anyway, um, I ha I got really bullied by one woman. She just, she was mad at me because I, I told the counselor that she was acting a fool with her girlfriend, which you don't do that. You don't go tell on people in prison. I learned that the hard way, you know? <laughs> so I, I told on her and then course inmates told her and so I would come out of my my and she's a lot bigger girl than me and she would just she would threaten and yell and, and just act a fool right and and I held my head high because I was like if she hits me she hits me but I mean it's not going to do me any good to run and cry about it I just gotta and I'd go out to the track and walk and she'd give me give me a hard time so so she's in the laundry room one time and I hear the the officers are they screaming at her and those two are like screaming back and forth and then she comes back to the cell and he's like, he, he's pretty mad at her because she's been just talking back and acting crazy, right? And and he he leaves and she comes over to my cell and she says, I need you to do something for me. She's like, I need you to write on your blog because I have a blog and I need you to basically state that this guy treated me like this and this and this and this. I need you to say that. And I remember thinking, I shouldn't do that, man. I shouldn't do that. I wasn't there. I didn't see it, you know, but I did it anyway. I did it. <laughs> He got in so much trouble. And I remember, you know, everybody going, yeah, louder, you know, because he got, he got banished to the perimeter. He couldn't come in the unit anymore. And, and I remember feeling so crappy about that. Like, why would I do that? I didn't see it. So if you're out there, I'm sorry, buddy, because I didn't see that. I don't know what happened. She was acting a fool with me. She was probably acting a fool with you. But at that point in time, I wanted to be the hero to the other inmates. <laughs> I've never ever talked about that. I yeah yeah. Scarface, I, I Scarface, if you're out there, um, that, that's 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 a redeem redemption. So I, I love this because you segued into it. Talk about your blog because I think this was such an interesting point in the book. Um, when you started writing the blog, it wasn't accepted that great from everybody, right? So take right. us through that journey right. of your blog and, and what you were trying to accomplish through it and what you learned through doing the blog. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was still my first year. I was still so, I was just in a lot of pain. I was angry and I hadn't gotten to the point where I owned where I was, you know? So I'm writing and I'm writing about things that the officer's doing. That's an example. And you know, my boss at the time, she, she said, I like your blog. She goes, I mean, you're, I, I want to know what's going on in the, in the units. I don't, I got, we got nothing to hide. Like we, we, we should look at that and embrace that so that we can fix those problems. Right. Which I thought was a really healthy attitude, but I had one of the lieutenants pull me over and he's like, you're making, you're going to make your time a lot harder on yourself louder. And I was like, that sounds like a threat. <laughs> he's like, call it what you want. You know, I said, I, I know you didn't mean to threaten me. Well, I just was, again, not acting the best. And so he's like, yeah, we're not going to threaten you. We're just going to put you in the shoe and transfer you. And that's what they did. So tell yeah, us what the, was, tell, explain what the shoe is, because when you explain this in yeah. the book too, and you went into detail in it, um, take mm -hmm. us there, the emotional part, take us to the physical part. What does it look like? How big yeah. is it? What do you go through when you go into the shoe? Well, the shoe, they call the shoe um, segregated housing unit. It's basically a dog kennel inside the prison. <laughs> it's very small. They have these little slotted cells. Like you have a, a little bed, you can barely walk back and forth, you know? And so it's kind of terrifying, especially when you have, I mean, if you, like for me, I like to be outside all the time and they don't let you outside there. So, you know, you're locked down 23 hours a day 
and sometimes 24 hours a day and they put little food through a slot and anywhere you go, they have to handcuff and shackle you. So yeah, I was there for a month that time. And then I got transferred around in different shoes and it sucks. And so, um, in the beginning I felt a panic attack. I was like, kind of flipping out. I'm going, you got to get me out of here. You got to get me out of the yard. I don't want to be here, you know, but then, I mean, for me, what really helps is to look at any situation and say, what do I, what can I control in this situation? I can control my breathing. I can get up in the morning. I can read, I can make, you know, I made an actual list. So I kept it really structured and that helped me, you know, helped me make like tune out all the, the circumstances I couldn't control. But yeah, the shoe is for people that fight or that are causing problems. But I was put in there for writing on a blog and that wasn't cool, but that's okay. I got transferred and I ended up in a different prison and that was good. You know, I made it. And the prison that I went to in Minnesota was pretty cool about it. They were like, we've got nothing to hide. Go ahead and write if you want to write. That's fine. But it was, I look back and I'm embarrassed because, you know, I was just so angry early on. And then I see myself kind of transform over time. I've had people say that, that followed my blog while I was in prison. They're like, it was crazy to see that transition in you. Like, about halfway through when I really owned where I had been and what had happened, like that freedom, things just opened up for me and, and it changed things. So, well, I think it's, it's amazing because you keep referring, you know, you keep referring to your relationship with God and um, you know, obviously it takes an immense amount of faith to have the type of joy that you have. And that, you know, and I think a lot of times people get, um, they get joy and, and happiness uh, intermixed, and that's where they get off because, you know, happiness is, is based off a of circumstance. I get something, yay, I'm happy. Joy is just a choice of falling in love with your current circumstances. And what they, right. they you know, what, I, what I've heard said and what, what I absolutely believe is that, the, that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But right. talk to us about this because a lot of people that are listening – and I'm uh, maybe I'm just more petty than you. Um, I would be mad at God. I mean, and it, it it seems like it seems like maybe He kept giving you evidence because that that you know faith is uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What evidence was God giving you that He didn't just abandon you because you're in a shoe, you're in a dog kennel? getting fed through a slot, right? Getting shackled and moved and transferred and reading in the book. When you guys get a chance to read the book, you'll get the details of it. Her getting on planes and on buses and not knowing where she's going, shackled to another inmate that she doesn't know. Right. What evidence through that stuff was he giving you to help you to keep your faith intact? I felt... Um from the from right out the gate when I got into prison and I was so broken. Once I felt that complete knowing of how loved and valued I was, it was this internal strength that I had. So through it all, I knew that there was purpose in it. And I think if you can get that, it's that joy right where you are, right? Like I knew that I had an important purpose. So every hardship that came up, it was like, well, this must be taking me to my purpose. This must be for my good. It's funny though, when you say, would you be mad at God? I mean, I, you know, I get out here and I hear people mad at God a lot more, but in prison, we had nothing. So everybody, nobody has a faith crisis in prison. <laughs> we got nothing. I was like, that's like a, you know, a faith crisis requires you to be up here. That means you've got to have something. Like we had nothing. 
<laughs> so when you're at the very bottom, you only got God. I mean, you know, if you have a faith crisis, that's like a huge, you know, that's, that's privilege type stuff there. <laughs> well, can you, yeah. t- can you talk to the, can you talk to the person that, uh, that hasn't experienced that side of it? Hasn't uh, experienced the feds yeah. coming to the house, the penitentiary, being away from your kids for 84 months, being, you know, having young, young children see you in a courtroom mm-hmm. and get sentenced and, and like you have to be pulled away. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to that person that, I mean, cause honestly, like I, I have been that person and I'm going to, again, I'm, you know, I'm calling myself out. I've gone to the grocery store and been like, I can't believe they don't have carnation uh, ice cream sandwiches. They only have the store-bought brand. You know what I mean? And I stomp out of the store and I'm just mad. And I'm like, I ain't even buying any ice cream sandwiches. Can you talk to that person? Or actually just talk to me about this and help me with my heart because my heart needs to be better. Oh, my heck. Well, I think that's what I love so much about prison is that I would, I let all those crazy worldly things get in my way. You know, I, 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 that's the beauty of this experience for me, man. I wear the same clothes every day. I don't care at all about material things anymore. I do, I do to a fault. I, you know, to a fault, like I I work at a treatment center with girls with addiction and and we had a girl that was there for three months. And I always announce when they come in, I'm like, you're going to see me wearing the same clothes every day. And she goes, when you said that, I thought you were just being humble, but you're legit on that one. <laughs> you know, you really do. I'm like, I don't care. I love getting to where I had four t-shirts and a pair of shorts. Even the meals, like I, I ate so simple. I ate almonds, apples, which almonds you have to buy on commissary, tuna fish on commissary, oatmeal in the morning. Like I had a, re- it, it wasn't much, but I was super grateful for the simplicity of my life. It makes everything else more beautiful when you get all that material stuff out of the way. It's like the sunset and the sunrise, nature, connection with others. I came home depressed, honestly. Like I came home and I'm like, where's all my people? Like my neighbors, they don't know what's going on with me. We're not like homies, like we are in prison, you know? And and, and my friend just got out and she called me. She goes, man, I'm going through it. I miss my girls. I go, right? Right. I go, it's going to take some time to acclimate to this crazy world out here. So for me, it was just that like, I loved how I felt. I loved the simplicity. It didn't start out that way, not even close, you know, but it got to the point where I just really appreciated the beauty of life so much more. I need that in my life now. I need time to write another book, but my life's too busy, you know? I had all this time, all this space to really get to know who I was and love and connect with others. And all the material things were taken away. And and I think that was beautiful. But I don't know how to tell you to do it out here, you know, unless you want to go to prison. And I know nobody does. <laughs> I just want to read your book. You you're sure. in prison, Kelly. That's all. Portia, I want to. So give me the top five rules if you ever go to prison. Give me the fi- okay. top five rules that you need to know to get prepared to go to prison. <laughs> okay, first of all, never take anything. Just don't, even if they offer you a bag of coffee when you get there, you don't want to owe anybody anything right? Just go without, you know, you want to have a little bit of money on your books or whatever, but if you can't still don't take anything because then you owe people. You don't want to create any kind of debts. So that's number one. Number two, make sure that you like, don't talk about people because that goes around so, so fast. Just, just shoot people straight. Just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Don't be like when somebody, (laughs) yeah, just keep, just, just don't do it. You know, just, just, just do life, do yourself, and don't. When somebody comes over and says, "Did you hear about this and this?" Don't agree with them. Just be like, mm, "Yeah, mm. 
because somebody's going to twist that around and it's going to go back in, in the other direction. Find a good job. Nobody told me that, so they threw me in the kitchen. That was uncool. Like when somebody comes in, you better go find a good job because you can find your own job. Find something that suits you or you're going to be stuck with something that you hate that's hard to get out of those jobs. And then get a room. Find a roomie that you like that will, you know, every time I hit a new prison, somebody would say, I want her because she's clean and she knows how to act right. So get yourself a good roomie because you're going to live with this person all the time, you know? And spend time as much as you can outside because that's where you're going to get your peace. And let's see. That's, that's five. That's five. Give me six though. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if anybody out there is lit that listening is connecting these. She just gave you a path to prison and to life. Stay out of debt. Don't talk about anybody. You know what I'm saying? Like find a good roommate. Uh, you know, I mean, this Isn't is that a, true. I like this, that. I mean, hell, like you could use this in middle school. I'm trying to tell you, teach my daughter, don't talk about anybody. Don't get in debt. You know what I'm saying? Keep going. Give us number six. What's number six? Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I feel like prison is a microcosm and that I got to watch things that happen out here happen over and over and over again. Like it's so small, right? So I could see what gossip does right away because it just travels versus out here. You don't realize what's happening, but it's still happening. And so I got all these cool lessons in there that I apparently needed to learn that I didn't know yet. Um, I remember this gal, she was, um, she, she was doing life and she was, she was a tough black girl and she, you know, she, and, and she was real nice to me. She's like, Laura, why do you think people don't mess with me? And I was like, Val, cause you're terrifying. That's why nobody's going to mess with you. And I said, Val, why do you think people don't hit on me? And she goes, because you're obviously not the type to be hit on. And I said, okay. And she goes, the only problem with you louder is that you're, you try to be too nice. She goes, you're sitting here in prison. She's like, why don't you just tell people if you don't want to do something? Because she had asked me, she's like, you know, she'd asked me if I'd take her pictures on Saturday. And I was like, well, maybe I can make it work. She goes, you don't want to do that. I said, no, I want to go outside and just sit in the sun. She's like, just tell me the truth. She goes, don't, don't worry about making people happy. You're in prison now, girl. Just tell people the truth, you know? And I've used that. I've used that. When someone calls me and I can't make something work, it's like, no, I can't do it. It's, it's empowering to just speak truth to people. So that was a good lesson. I learned so many good things in there, but I'll have to think about that, Kelly. I'll have to think about that. Well, I'm trying to imagine you when you get out, right? And if for those of you watching me and I'm smiling, it's, it's because Portia's my friend. Um, but it's not because I'm laughing at the situation because I you don't want to. Okay, me. but I picture you getting out of, out of prison and you going home and you said like, hey, where are my homies at? And then you go to your door. The, I can see this in a movie and you go to your neighbor's house and be like, yo, I just wanted to be more like prison in our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> can you, can you, well, and can you imagine I mean, your neighbor not understanding, but in your right. head, you're like, no, I want a sense of community. I want to be able to connect on those things. What, okay. what, what do you think was the biggest, not a big deal once you got out that you saw someone freaking out on? And I want a specific because, you know, I've seen, um, you know, I, I joke here in, uh, I live in North County, San Diego and, um, you know, I'll see people freak out on stuff that, and I find myself at times too. So I'm, I'm petty. Um, mm -hmm. but I see people freak out and I'm like, 
oh my gosh. Because I grew up, uh, you know, we grew up in a, a double wide mobile home on the side of the freeway. We lived 40 miles away from our high school and had to drive 40 miles each way. And it was actually, there was a, a mountain in the middle of it. So it was uphill both ways. So this sounds like a grandfather story. Right. And right. I'm, I'm saying the sob story, but this is real true stuff. Those of the people that know me, they know that part. And then when I see somebody and they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't get to do this. Give us a specific when you got out of prison that you saw someone overreact and you were like, you don't even know. Yeah. Well, I, I had a friend that told me when she got out, she goes, every, she goes, people out here don't know how to act right, man. They're so disrespectful. You know, I was like, right. Like they aren't, they don't hold boundaries. They don't. But I think like one thing that was hard for me right away was wasting things. Cause we don't waste anything in there. Like you take old shoes and you pass them on and, you pass, and then everyone has way too much out here. People buy way too much. They think they have to have more. You know, that was hard for me. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I mean, I, I want to give you a specific, but like people standing in lines out here act a fool over it. I'm like, we might stand there for two hours waiting for a bag of tuna fish. I don't even want to hear it. Like you better figure out how to handle yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, you better figure out how to stand, you know, and how to handle yourself. You throwing a fit over being alive? Yeah, yeah that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, I, and I, I can't wait to hang out because I, I, I'm going to keep asking you these questions. So we'll be in line somewhere, uh, Portia, at some point, And I'll be like, that person tripping, right? You'll be like, yeah, I got this story. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Get it together. So, so how how is it? Because say when you said that your dad was a vet, right? And so sometimes yeah. as a as a vet, our parents and, you know, we're, we're, I'm older than you, but we're right around the same. Um, I, but so that's why you, I'm older than you. So you have to respect me. Um, but I'll bet you're not older than me, but we'll okay. just go ahead and let you have that. All right. Tw <laughs> 21 looks good on you, uh, Portia. So, um, so when, when we're, when we're in that spot, a lot of times, like people who have gone through a lot don't have empathy for people who haven't, but you seem to have this perspective how is it that you don't go to the penitentiary mindset on your kids? Like, cause I know your kids are such amazing children and they've adapted and they've gone through all this stuff, but there's times, right. That I remember when, with my son Maddox, love him to death. He woke up one time and you would have thought that the house was on fire. I was like, what's up, son? He's like, we don't have any milk. And I said, oh, well, what, what do you mean? And he's like, we don't have any milk, dad. And I was like, well, we're not going to be able to have cereal today. He's like, why don't you just go to the store and buy it? And I was like, hurt, skirt, like just stop right there. How do you keep that? How do you keep that empathy with your kids when you've gone through what you're going through and they bring home to you, oh, mom, my teacher was mean to me today because she made me do homework. Right. Well, I mean, it was kind of a shock, to be honest, when I got home, you know, because my husband, he's like trying to take care of the kids and he's being so soft and nice. And I just feel bad for him. Their mom's in prison. Yeah. And then I get home. My daughter, my 17-year-old daughter, isn't going to school one morning, and I go in and turn on the light. I'm like, every morning, you're out the door at this time. I don't care. That's what happens. And she freaks out on me. You did not raise me. Dad raised me. You can't tell me what to do. So I let her scream and throw her fit, sit there for about two minutes, and I said, all right, I'm going to go out and come back, and we're going to do that again, and you're going to be ready for school. 
you know, like I'm pretty good at the boundaries. So it's just like, throw, I mean, I've said that I've watched girls go crazy in prison, throw things around. I'm like, you need to act a fool. That's fine. But we're still, you're still going to school. That's what's happening. You know? So I'm, they know that about me now, <laughs> but you can act a fool all you want. It's still going to happen. Like we're still going to go forward and do it. So that, that has been a challenging now with Jackson loves that he's very structured. Sadie, she can't stand that about me. Um, she's getting better though, because she did graduate high school and she is accomplishing things she wouldn't have because she had to do things she didn't want to do, right? And CJ, I don't get that kid. She's just so compassionate and she'll like, she really is. I'll say, CJ, we have to do, this. okay, mom. Like if I say we can't do this, I understand mom. Like she kind of gets it, you know? So I don't know. Um, I think that, I really love my kids so much and want them to be the best version of themselves. I think when you, when you are there, when you, like, I love the girls I work with in treatment. I love the young adults I work with in mental health. I mentor kids in mental health groups. I love them. And I also believe in them. And I also hold them accountable. Like I, I had a young adult and uh, she was telling me how everything else was her problem. And, and she, she was just complaining about her parents and everything else. And I said, have you apologized for the way you've been acting? And she looks at me and everybody looks at me. And I said, but yeah, I said, I, everything you're saying to me sounds so disrespectful. All the other therapists in the room are looking at me like, whoa, she just said that, you know? So I, I speak the truth and I believe in people and I love them. And I feel like there's, if you love people and you really want them to become the best version of themselves, they, they can feel it and know it and they're willing to hear things that are hard to hear. And so I, I do that. As far as, you know, prison, once in a while my kids, especially Sadie, I'll say, I'm like over prison, mom. I don't need to hear another word about prison. I'm done with hearing about prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's what we do. So we just, we just make it work. I guess prison's like part of our life. Not everybody's, but my kids are just, yeah, mom, I'm done with hearing about it. Thanks today. I don't want to hear another word about prison. <laughs> so. So Portia, how was it uh, re when you're reacclimated? Because I don't think that people ever talk about like when I say this. Uh, my family's from Utah, so I understand the culture, and um, yeah. I would say that people are a little bit close to your business at times um, in in the, in the culture, <laughs> okay. right? Okay. Okay, so I'll tell you this. I knew when I got home, my life would never be the same. I wasn't about to hide from it. I speak very openly about it because I just decided when you go to prison. What else do you have to lose? At this point, you know, it's like, now what? Now what you're going to say? Yep. Anyone that says she went to prison, absolutely. She was a liar. Absolutely. She did this. Absolutely. You know, it, it happened. Yeah. So you just own it. And I don't, I just refuse to, to let that imprison me because I know who I am, right? Um, it was really hard to come home because I felt insecure and I didn't expect that. I was like, I mean, not in terms of, I was... The other thing that was hard was that I thought people didn't want me to talk about it. And that was frustrating for me. I was like, you want, cause most people, they think prison's a bad thing, right? I'm thinking, you know, that LDS culture, people come home for missions. I'm like, you better be throwing me a party too. Like, <laughs> go ahead, throw people a party. I just went and changed my whole dang life. I'm expecting people to celebrate. <laughs> people are like, Ooh, she went to prison. I'm like, you're not really going to say that. Are you like, yeah, I went to prison and my life's amazing because of what I learned in prison. So I truly believed the world was cheering me on and they have, 
And I also refused to hide from it and it's been good for me. But I was insecure at first because I was so comfortable in that environment and the world is big and it just felt weird to me. There's, it's a different culture out here. And so, you know, I recognized the struggle is real when you get out and I took it slow and I have the world's best husband. So he totally supported me through that, but it, it's taken time to get back to where, you know, it just, it takes time to acclimate to prison and it takes time to acclimate to getting out. So. What has Chad not heard enough from you? What has Chad not heard enough from me? Um, he knows how much I love him and, and how grateful I am. Um, I don't know. Like we have such a close relationship. I think after everything we've been through, it's like, we're the happiest we've ever been. Like we really love each other. I love the way Chad loves me and believes in me and supports me. It's like the most beautiful thing. You know, I feel like I, I'm the luckiest woman on the planet to, to be married to Chad. And yet he, he tells me that about me. So it's like, I don't know. I think he's the person, just he's my person, you know, just love him. And so I don't know what, I mean, he knows how much I love him and how much I believe in him. And I think he feels the same way about me. So I don't know. I, we just share, he's, I share everything with Chad. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything that I could tell Chad that he doesn't know. Um, I've told him, you know, how did I trick you into marrying me? I'm so lucky. And he says the same. And I don't know. We just love each other a lot. You know, it's pretty beautiful. What do you wish that your kids knew more about you? I wish my kids knew that, um, how much, how much I love them and believe in them and how sorry I am. Like, I don't know how to, how much I want them to have more than what I have, you know, and, and that I know that I'm probably tough on the outside with them, but I love them so deeply. You know, I think especially my daughter, Mercedes, like I want her to know, like the pain that I experienced in prison over the choices that I made was, was devastating and real. I spent months just heartbroken and I still have those moments and like, I am so committed to just cheering them on to the bitter end, you know, whatever they're going through. I love them and I believe in them. And I just, I just want them to know how amazing they are. I don't give them, I mean, my daughter Sadie doesn't come around that much, but I know she will. Like I believe in the long game. That's what I know. Like I've lived long enough to know the long game is the real game. And you can't get caught up in this little moment because I'm living a life of integrity and that pays off in the end. And so, I'm here. I'm here for my kids and they can tell me anything. Honesty is our highest value. Go ahead and tell me you just, I'll, I'll give you one, one, one last thing. My daughter, CJ, I love her. She, she was going through a hard time and she, she knows honesty is the highest value in our home. So she calls me from school with the principal in the office on speakerphone and said, mom, I bought some marijuana on Instagram and I sold it to some kids at school. <laughs> and the principal goes, this is, not expected from CJ. And I said, well, why did you do that? Because it just seemed kind of cool and fun. <laughs> I said, you just committed two felonies. What were you thinking? You know, but I was grateful that she told me and that's something we've been able to work through. And so what I've taught my kids is tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. I want my kids to know anything. Tell me, because I want you to be free. I want you to be able to tell me and tell someone so we can help you move forward. You know? I want to, I want to compliment you, Portia, because you have something that very few people have, and it's the ability to be able to laugh at whatever it is that you have. 
and the other, uh, you know, the, the one of the only other people in my life that I've ever seen do that was my mom. And my mom would keep her sense of humor at all times, no matter what. What gave you the permission to be able to laugh? Like, we've laughed a lot on this episode, and we're talking about prison. We're talking about seven right. years <laughs> seven years away from five children, a husband that you love, um, you know, real estate deals gone wrong, the dimmer switch. We've talked about Percocet. Right. We've talked about all these things. We've talked about, I mean... <clears throat> You, you name it, we've talked about it. We just talked about your daughter finding weed on Instagram and selling it and being in the principal's office, and we have been able to laugh today. What gives you that permission, and what, where can someone out there get the permission to be able to laugh about their circumstances so they can get through it and see it as something that is for them as opposed to against them? Right. I think that or I feel a lot of joy but also the, the power of truth in my life has given me the, when you can eliminate the judgment, when you can eliminate the judgment of others or yourself, you know, show that compassion to yourself and to others because it's not helpful. It just doesn't help. So when you can set that aside and just look at the, look at it, is it bad? Is it good? Well, it, potentially it could be good because CJ could have learned from that. She did. We talked about it. She was honest with the principal. The principal didn't charge her with anything. I mean, we talked about it. He was actually really proud of her for being so honest, right? So we worked through it. So that's the celebration. My kids learning how to deal with hard things. So I, I take away the judgment out of things. And I feel like when you take the judgment out, there's joy, there's humor, there's sadness. Because when you go through it, it wasn't that easy to go through. But when you work through it, you can look back at it with joy. And, and you get the lesson. And that's where the laughter comes. It's just, it happened. I just had this thought, but can you talk to the, the wives out there in, in your area, okay, in Utah? Because in Utah, what I've noticed, and, and I, I say this because my family's from there. My family grew up in Tooele and Grantsville, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and, and we spend time out. We've got a lot of family out there. But I see a lot of pressures on the wives in the socioeconomic area where they turn to prescription drugs a lot of times, it's very, very common. Can you talk right. to those wives and those mothers that have the most immense pressure that we don't even understand at times? You understand it because yeah. you went through it. I understand. Oh, do I understand? And yeah, and they're and they're su- and they're suffering silently. Can you talk to right. those people and and help the people that maybe aren't going through it to understand what they are going through? Yeah. Yeah, nothing hurts me more than to see these amazing women that I love feeling completely isolated inside because of prescription drugs, because I've been there. And I remember a therapist in prison saying, Miss Louder, I just imagine you trying to take care of everything else around you and popping another pill, taking care of everything else around you. And that's what I see with these women, you know, that I love, that they're trying to keep going and they're taking more pills. And I would just say that there is something so beautiful and freeing when you just don't care anymore what anyone thinks. And you just say, yep. I mean, I work in a treatment center. It's an all women's treatment center. I've had the most amazing women, women that are, are LDS or women that are whatever religion they are, come in and we pray together. I don't care. I mean, again, religious is separate. This is us connecting and healing and growing together. And, and I see you, I am you, I've been where you are and there's freedom. You aren't stuck. You can find your way forward. And I, I feel like I the things I thought people would think about me, 
when I got really open and honest, people have celebrated that. You know, who cares what anyone thinks? But but if you do know that people will celebrate your truth, there's freedom in that and there's power in that. And we're in it together. There's no one I've met. I've met the most amazing women with the most amazing careers that have drug addictions. It covers everybody. And, and it's real. And it's just something that happens. So let's just move past it and get the help you need, you know? When you've gone through what you what you have and you look at and you you've really it's it's so inspiring because you have really taught us all even just in this in this time when you and I together um, what's really important so so how are you able to you know because I think a lot of times people think I can either have you know prosperity as far as financially or success financially or I can have and do what I love. But I can't have both. This is what the world a lot of times tells us. And it's almost a polarization. Like I got to be on one side or the other. I got to be hustling and getting everything or I got to be loving my family. But if I love my family, I'm going to be poor. So I would uh, maybe, but no one talks about the middle. And it seems like you have found that kind of holy grail. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think that when you find that passion and that true integrity, then everything you build is real. And you don't need all of the material things as much. Like you don't, you appreciate them when they come and you're grateful. But like, I hate shopping. I used to love to shop because there's something so much more real in my life today. So when you can fill yourself with something you're passionate about, you don't need as much, but you still like, I, you still have enough. You do. And and sometimes more. I mean, I have, I'll probably make more money than I want to make in my life, to be honest. And it just shows up, you know what I mean? It just shows up because you are attracting it, because you're living according to correct principles. And and it shows up in your life, like, more than I can handle. So, I mean, I'm grateful for it, but just, just start with yourself. Like, I don't care what the problem is. If it's drug addiction, if it's your kids, figure out how valuable you are. Get, if it's for you, if it's prayer, if it's meditation, if it's nature, it's all those things for me. I get myself centered. I know who I am and the rest makes sense. And you talked about that in your intro, finding joy right where you are. It's so available to us. Knowing your worth will change the game and everything else will make more sense. Portia, you're absolutely phenomenal. Um, You know, I started the podcast because of my two children. Um, I don't have like 16 like you do. Um, but I, I have, I have, I have two children, uh, Maddox, who's 11, um, McKenna, who's 14 years old. Uh, Maddox is the, you know, a, a sports guy all into the NFL. He's, I mean, so ridiculously talented everything he does. He picks it up. He can do it. Um, and he's got the joy of life. He wakes up and he's just super happy every, I mean, joyous every single day. Um, McKenna has got the most sarcastic personality and you would love her. The sense of humor is amazing. She's in the arts, uh, acting, singing, all those things. And she has one of the biggest hearts I've ever seen. Um, I started the podcast because of those two individuals, because I wanted to take iconic people like yourself. And I wanted to show them that the Porsche louders of the world don't have different blood running through their veins and they're not superheroes. They're simply people with phenomenal attitudes and crazy work ethic. So what advice would you give to Maddox and McKenna and if he could use both of their names, it would be awesome. Yeah. So Maddox and McKenna, you're amazing. Your life is so, so important. What you have to do on this earth and your purpose, nobody else can do. Everything you do will change the world. The choices that you make today will change the world. Your light 
and your ability to connect with others is so needed on this earth. I'm grateful I got a chance today to speak to your dad. And I'm grateful that I got to hear about you on this podcast. I just know because I, I know your dad and I, I actually did see Maddox on a little video, but those kids are going to change the world, right? They're amazing. And I'm honored and grateful that I got to speak out to you and speak to your dad and anyone else that I got to connect with today. And just God bless you. You've got so much. Would you remember when I was that age? Oh, if I could have known who I was, figure it out. You amazing kids, you, you're going to change the world. And that is the truth. Portia, I want to thank you. Um, and now's the time where I want to thank all our sponsors too. Um, and it, it's funny that I say this, this is a good, I, I'm really bad at segues, but I'm going to do it. Um, one of our sponsors is Private Money Club and the privatemoneyclub.com. I told you guys about that. Uh, but the other one is Money School. And I could tell you this. I didn't learn any financial literacy when I was growing up. I learned that you get it, you get it out the house as soon as possible. I think that was my dad helping me to realize that money was the root of all evil. And he was like, well, get the devil out the house because I got 500 bucks. We're going to buy a car. We're going to do whatever. And I didn't get financial literacy. I didn't learn what to do with my money. Well, Money School with Chris Nago, if you check him out on YouTube, um, he is a guy that has been an incredible friend of mine, but he has a different way of thinking about your finances. And so Money School, I mean, I tell you, for Portia and I, um, if we would have gone to Money School early on, we probably, maybe we wouldn't have never met. So it's better that we didn't do that. Um, and now we're friends. But I want to thank all our sponsors out there too and uh, click the links you're going to have the links to uh, Portia's book we're going to have that in her in the bio um, and and connect with her if you're looking for her to come and speak with your organization too we're going to have the links to be able to connect that way also but I want to thank every single person first of all I want to thank the people who are listening Second of all, I want to thank the people who are watching. If you're watching, you're watching on Spotify or you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, 85% of you that are watching are not subscribed to the channel. So just subscribe because my kid thinks I'm cooler when I have more subs. Okay. Um, but we want, we want to thank you because organically, organically, Portia, this is crazy. Every one of those, these listeners has put us in the top 1% of all podcasts globally. And it hasn't been from any advertisement. It hasn't been from, we have not uh, promoted, uh, you know, we have not done paid, uh, you know, uh, we, it's all been organic. And it's all because you, you have been sharing it. So keep sharing it. Anyone out there that has a child that's struggling with drugs, anyone out there that has a child that's dabbling in drugs, anyone out there who has children, anyone out there who has a husband, a wife, anyone out there that has any inkling that the dimmer switch is just about to happen or they're even reaching for it, share this episode because I believe that Portia is one of the most important voices in our community today because she's not talking from a judgment standpoint. She's talking from a, a standpoint of, guys, I've been there. I've done it. I've experienced it. It was my fault. I take responsibility for it. But please don't do what I did. <laughs> Portia, you have been amazing, and I want to thank you so much for your time. You have been, I can't wait for the next, uh, the next episode with you. That's right. All right. Man, God bless you, friend. You're doing amazing work. It's been so cool to hang out with you today. <laughs> Click the links, guys. Do what you need to do. Sub for my son on YouTube. Do it because you know it's the right thing to do. Portia, <laughs> you're amazing. You're officially off the hot seat.